part of who we are, part of our identity as a church is the fact that we are called to partner with parents to raise up a generation of leaders and not followers. And, and so what that means is that to whatever degree parents choose to lean in and make a priority, this community of faith, then we're going to be there with them. We're going to be there to reinforce. We're going to be there to encourage, to help, to equip their kids, to experience and, and discover the, the blessings and the privilege and, and just what it means to be the family of faith, to be the church instead of just going to church. And, and so we're going to help them discover that muscle memory so that one day, hopefully and prayerfully, their parents' faith becomes their faith and they make it personal and it's not just cultural. And so what that means is that from the very first time that a parent ever drops their child off in LHC Kids, we are always communicating to them who God is, how much he loves them, how he operates, what it means to be a part of this thing called the church. And one of the things that we're very, very deliberate and I would tell you hyper-intentional about is teaching kids that the Bible is God's word and God's word is true. That, that's just kind of what we do around here. We believe that. And then we, we also want to, as they grow up throughout our church, help them to appropriate that. And like I said, make their faith their own. And this, this kind of happens in fits and starts with kids of all ages. As you might imagine, they process it at different paces and different ways. There was one kid that this happened in the early years of our church that I heard about. And the reason I heard about it is because this kid was my son, Job. But he was in school, like in kindergarten and first grade, right before the holidays in December. And in choir, they were going through a lot of the songs of the holidays from different cultures. There were Christmas carols. They were doing songs from Hanukkah. They were doing songs from Kwanzaa. And the choir teacher, who also happens to be a member of our church, Angela Woodbridge, as the, she was introducing some Hanukkah songs to the children, she said, are any of you Jewish? And Joseph Richard's hand was the first one up in the air. <laughs> and because she knew us, she was like, Joe, buddy, I, I don't think you're Jewish. He goes, no, I am. And she goes, okay, well, I, I don't think so, but is anybody else Jewish? Jo Joe would not put his hand down. He was like, Ms. Woodbridge, I'm Jewish. And Angela was telling Julie and me this story after the fact, and we finally put two and two together and realized that for the last few months in LHC Kids, they had been studying Israel and Moses and the Ten Commandments and entering the Promised Land, and Joseph had so appropriated the stories of Israel that he thought he was Jewish. This little white Anglo-Saxon Protestant of Scotch-Irish Cajun descent, just he was as Jewish as the next guy. And now, in the ensuing years, we've kind of helped him to process through that. And now that he's starting seminary, we've gotten those differences ironed out in his life. But the fact remains that he was appropriating those stories. And I think as we continue this series, Asking for a Friend, it kind of raises a great question. And the question is this. How much do we appropriate the Bible? How much do we trust what this book says, and how much do we allow that to impact not just what we know, but what we believe, and therefore, how we behave? What does it look like in our lives? And the thing that's exciting to me is that in the time that we've got left here this morning, 
we're, we're going to look at this idea of what about the Bible? Because whether you're a Christian or a skeptic or even a cynic, you have to come to grips with, with what happens in these pages. Now, one of the things that I'm so excited about preaching this message about what God is going to do in the next few minutes that we have together is that a couple of things are going to happen for everybody. Number one, everybody in this room is going to be encouraged. I promise you that. If you're a longtime follower of Christ, you're going to be encouraged by the fact that our faith and specifically our Bible can stand up to intellectual, philosophical scrutiny. We, we don't have to back up or, or cower in fear from any debate, any conversation. The Bible can stand on its own two feet. But by the same token, if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're a skeptic checking things out and you're curious, you're going to be encouraged as well because I want you to know before we ever begin, there is more common ground than any of us has been misled to believe. There's a lot of room for common ground for skeptic and believer alike. And that's, I think, an encouraging thing for all of us. But you're also going to be challenged. Christian, I, I want to challenge you. I challenge myself to, to do the homework and, and to be able to explain, like we talked about last week, that, that not only should we be able to explain our faith and the hope that we have in Christ, explain what we believe, but we should also be able to explain why we believe it. We, we need to give the reason for the hope that we have, the Bible tells us. And so I, I want to challenge you as a follower of Christ, do the homework. Use what we take, what happens in here, and, and do the homework. Be able to have the conversation. Be able to articulate what you believe and why you believe it. Einstein, who was a pretty smart guy, said that unless you can explain something to a fifth grader, you don't understand it. And I think there's a lot of validity in that statement. We need to be able to, to break it down and explain it. But to the non-Christian, to the skeptic, we're not going to let you off the hook either. We're going to challenge you. We're, we're going to kind of lovingly poke and prod and hopefully prompt you to really take a look at some long-held truisms that our culture puts forward, maybe even some that you have said, but we're going to kind of push back against some of those because we love you too much to let you off the hook. And so wherever you fall on the spiritual spectrum this weekend, there's something here for all of us to be encouraged and to be challenged by. Now, it's interesting when you talk about the Bible, it shouldn't surprise us that God would choose to communicate with us because we're created in his image, and, and the fact is that he's created us for relationship, not just for knowledge, but for relationship, then he's going to communicate to us. Every relationship requires communication. It requires understanding and, and, and this back and forth, this give and take. I, I wonder, how many of you are, are married in the house? If you're married, raise your hand if you would just for a second. Okay, if you're married, isn't it true that marriage, a good marriage requires communication and understanding. Is there anybody in the room that wants to help me preach that sermon? I just, I just think that's kind of part of it. It makes sense. By the same token, any real relationship that I know anything about requires some pushback. It requires some, some accountability and some challenge. And I think 
it, it makes sense that if we're going to relate to a perfect, morally flawless, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God, then some of our beliefs, some of our cultural norms probably are going to get some pushback. And it's, it's against that backdrop that I think we, we come to an understanding of what God says in the Bible. In John chapter 1, it's the fourth book of the New Testament. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open there and just kind of hold your finger there for just a second. It's fascinating. As John begins his historical account of the life of Jesus, his eyewitness account, the words that he uses, specifically one word in particular that he uses to describe Jesus and the life of Jesus, are absolutely fascinating. Look at what he says in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The Bible says this. Now, in the beginning, so right away, John's talking the same language the Scripture's been talking for thousands of years. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created. He says, in the beginning the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, so the Word is a person. The Word is, is a personality. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 5. So there's this idea that, that Jesus is the Word of God embodied. He, he personally personifies the Word of God. Everything that God has said biblically is captured in essence in the person of Jesus Christ. That, 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 that Jesus embodies every part of God's character that we need to understand who he is, that we need to relate to God personally. It is all captured in the person and the personality of Jesus. And, and when John uses that word, the word, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing because what John is saying here is that there is no separation, there's no daylight between the word of God and the will of God, between the character of God and the communication of God, that there is perfect alignment, 100% integrity in what God says and who God is, that the word Jesus perfectly embodies every part of who God is. And so for us to understand who God is, we have to know Jesus, that, that Jesus is that embodiment. And so we understand that, but it's interesting, too, that, that John uses this term, the word. That in the original Greek, it's the word logos. Say logos. Logos, logos is a great word. It's where we get the word logic. It's how we kind of put the end on every word, biology, geology, archaeology, all of those things are the study of, they are the words, the knowledge of that particular subject. So Jesus is the logos, he's the word, he's the study of God, and it's, it's all in him. So this is ultimately about Jesus. The Bible is God's word, but Jesus is God himself. Jesus is the son of the living God. And so when we understand that, then we start to understand 
how Paul could inspire his young protege, the young pastor Timothy, and Paul could say the following to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Bible says this, all scripture, say all. All, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. All scripture is inspired by God. That means that God has done something miraculous. He has done something supernatural. Now, I know earlier I said that we were talking to skeptics alike. So if you're not there on miracles and the supernatural, just hang on for a second. We're getting there. But just understand that the Christian belief is that all Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God. That means that it is God-breathed, that he supernaturally communicated to flawed human beings like you and me his word, what he wants to be in Scripture, and then supernaturally protected not just the communication, but then the translation of it so that we have every single thing that we need to understand who he is and more importantly, how to relate to him, how to connect with him. That the Bible is essentially our rules of engagement with a holy and perfect God who wants to connect with unholy, imperfect people like you and me. And so there's a lot that, that is packed into that. Now, you may have heard, not everybody believes that. Not everybody is down with the entire Bible being the authoritative Word of God. And there's actually a lot of pushback against that. Tim Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. And Keller is a brilliant expositor of Scripture, but he's also a great explainer of the Bible. He's a great defender of the faith and helps people to understand the facts supporting our faith. If you've never read his book, Reason for God, I would highly Highly recommend it. Keller says that there are three broad categories that most people's arguments against the authority of Scripture fall under. These are not the only ones, but as you talk to people, maybe as you have questions about the Bible, most arguments or most questions will fall under these three headings. And, and so I want to just I want to mention them to you because I think it helps us to kind of frame the conversation as we interact with God personally, but also in our conversations with other people so that we can actually give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Now, the first objection to the Bible's authority that Keller mentions is that people will kind of broadly say that the Bible is scientifically impossible, that there's no way Creation happened in six days. And, and, the, and the whole thing about the miracles, woe up on that cowboy, some people say. And I completely understand where they're coming from. Like I said, most of these objections scientifically crystallize around creation and the miracles. Not all of them, but a lot of them. But when you start to understand how the Bible is written, why the Bible is written, then again, as I said a minute ago, you actually start to find more room for common ground than some people want to admit. 
There's, there's this, this strain of thought in our world that says science and faith are complete opposites and have nothing in common. Usually, people make that argument because they don't want anything to be in common. The reality is the more we learn scientifically and the more we learn scripturally, the more common ground there actually is. Take, for example, creation. As it's recorded in the Bible, Genesis 1 through Genesis 3 especially. Now, what's interesting and important to note is that the Bible was never intended to tell how God created everything. Genesis is much more biography than it is biology. It's a lot more about the fact that God created everything than it is how God chose to do it. And some people are strict creationists. When they read, in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, they believe that that means six literal days, six 24-hour periods. There are other people who think that that is a bunch of hogwash, and they think that evolution is the only answer in the world, and if you don't believe in evolution, then you have checked your brain at the door. Both positions, polar opposites from one another, need to take a massive chill pill. Turn to your neighbor and tell them like you mean it, chillax. Here's the thing. Let's say, for example, and, and by the way, there are a lot of committed, theologically conservative Christians who do not interpret Genesis chapter 1 literally, literally. They believe that it's true, but not that it's six literal 24-hour periods. For the record, the word in the Hebrew that is translated day is the word yom. Say yom. You are now bilingual. Congratulations. The word yom can mean a day, 24 hours, but it can also mean an era or an epoch, E-P-O-C-H. Not like epic, man, but epoch. Like back in the day, that, that could be the translation of that word. So amongst committed, committed, devoted Christians, there's a lot of room for debate in there. Now, if, on the other hand, you are a committed, strict, 24-hour, six-day creationist, then at the very least, that position requires, first and foremost, humility. Because you believe that God did it, and he did it alone. So humbly, we should say, this is what I believe. Now, I was not there. I didn't see God do it in six days. This is what I believe based on what I've read, based on the homework that I've done, if you've done the homework, but it requires humility. Again, let's say that you were down here on the far, far, far end, and you're a strict evolutionist. And if you don't believe in evolution and that we crawled out of the primordial ooze, then you're checked your brain at the door and you don't deserve to be loved. Then you're a strict evolutionist that also requires humility because you did not hear the Big Bang. You were not there for all those eons and eons and eons. It to be sure, there's a lot of evidence that supports natural selection. Things change. Listen, men right now are on average 
five and a half inches taller than we were 125 years ago. So things change. But either view requires humility. Just because there is evidence for evolution, don't act like the entire evolutionary chain is signed, sealed, and delivered, locked, and loaded beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's not. There are significant historical archaeological gaps in the strict evolutionist view, and there's a lot we don't know about who God is. So both views require humility. So the, the scientific objection to Scripture, wherever you land on that, requires that you come to the conversation humbly, that you say, we don't know, but I'm going to do the homework. I'm going to start to figure this out. If you read Genesis 1 through 3, it reads very much like an epic poem. It is true, but it's not science. Let me explain. Show of hands real quick again. How many of you are married? How many of you are married men? Let me just see a show of hands. Men, keep your hands up for right now. How many of you completely understand your wives? Part of the beauty, part of the power and strength of our wives is that there is mystery. There, there is wonder. 28 years of wedded bliss, and I am still learning volumes about Julie Richard. There, you know, it's funny. When she asks me, we're sitting at home, empty nesting, what are you thinking? My typical response, nothing. <laughs> and, and it still drives her batty. She's like, nothing? There, there's nothing happening in your mind right now. I'm like, I mean, horns won last night. I mean, I'm good. And she's like, there's nothing going on. Now, by the same token, the flip side of that coin is for 28 years, when I've asked Julie, what are you thinking? Not one time has she ever said nothing. As a matter of fact, when I ask Julie, what are you thinking? I need to make sure I've got time to listen. Because there's a lot that's going on up there. And it's all connected. There's a lot of God that is and ought to be mystery. Can I, can I just suggest to you that you don't want a God that you can completely understand? You, we're talking about perfection morally. I can't even get my brain around that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. He had no beginning. He has no end. Okay, no end I can kind of imagine, sort of, but no beginning that, that he is eternal in time immemorial. He has always been. There's no beginning. I'm like, I'm sorry. I do not get that. But I believe it. There, there's, there's certain things that, that cannot be scientifically, empirically proven that are still true, that are still real. 
So just because you can't scientifically prove doesn't mean it's not true or that it's not real. The second objection that Keller mentions is that the scriptures are historically unreliable. Historically. That there were a lot of changes coming and going. What do you do with the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas that was added later on and didn't make it in with the first four? All of these questions about historicity of Scripture. And to be sure, there are questions, but they are absolutely answerable. As a matter of fact, there's a chart that we've used in here before as a church, and if you've been here for this, you maybe have seen this chart. I was going to preach this message without the chart, but I mentioned to a member of our church that I wasn't going to use the chart, and she goes, well, I'm not coming. And I said, Julie, I'll use the chart. <laughs> but this chart, I think, helps us to look at the evidence objectively and, and evaluate the historical reliability of Scripture as it relates to other ancient texts, other historical documents that we pretty much rely on. So on the chart here, it looks like this. We've got four things, three that we compare the New Testament to. The first one is Homer. How many of you read the Odyssey or the Iliad in, in high school? How many of you were supposed to have read the, Homer, the Odyssey or the Iliad? Thank you. I couldn't do it. I just, I could not get through it. I'm sorry. It was not Lonesome Dove. Homer, <clears throat> Caesar's history of Roman military conquest. Tacitus was a Roman historian and then the New Testament. So if you look at Homer's writings, he was writing in the 9th century B.C., 900 years before the life of Christ. The earliest copies that we have of Homer's writings, we can't date. There are 643 copies of Homer's writings. 643 copies that are still in existence, extant, they would say. The accuracy of those 643 copies with each other is at about 95%. So when we read the Odyssey, the Iliad, if you read the Odyssey and the Iliad, then you can know you're pretty much reading what Homer wrote. Caesar, writing his histories of the Roman military, was writing in the first century B.C., within 100 years of the life of Jesus. The earliest copies of Caesar's original writings that we have date to 900 AD. So the, the closest documentation we have to what Caesar actually wrote is 1,000 years after the fact. There are only 10 copies dating back to antiquity of Caesar's writing, 10. So with a number that small, you can't really peg a reliable percentage of accuracy on Caesar's stuff. Tacitus, however, writing about 200 years later, was in the 100 AD range. The earliest copies we have of Tacitus's writings date to 1100 AD. So again, there's a thousand years between when Tacitus wrote it down and the copies that we still have access to. There are only 20 copies of Tacitus's writings Yet nobody even raises an eyebrow when some teacher, history class teaches this is what Tacitus said. Now, the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the first century A.D. between 50 and 100. Actually written down. 
the earliest copies that we have of the New Testament date to the second century, right around 130 AD. So you're within 50 to 80 years of the actual writing for these copies. The number of copies that we have of New Testament manuscripts numbers over 5,000. 5,000. Now here's the staggering number to me, just the evidentiary number. The accuracy of those 5,000 plus copies to one another, linguistically, is within 99%. 99% accuracy, copy to copy to copy to copy to copy to copy to copy, out to 5,000 plus. You cannot prove, you cannot prove empirically A plus B equals C, that the Bible is historically reliable. But the overwhelming weight of the evidence shames any other ancient text, shames it. So the historical reliability, the historical accuracy of the Bible actually does pretty well when we compare it to other ancient texts. Now, the scientific challenge, the historical challenge, those are real, but there's, there's a third challenge that I think, and, and Keller, Keller agrees with me, but Keller says that there's a third challenge that is actually growing in prominence, and that is that the Bible is culturally irrelevant. It's culturally irrelevant, or some would say it is morally intrusive, morally oppressive, that the biblical view of, of women, of sexuality, it is so antiquated and outdated. And even some would say it's, it's actually hurtful and harmful. But I want to just, again, ask you a question about any relationship you have, any relationship. Isn't it true that the people closest to us are the people who know us best and are the ones that push back the most. Think about it. The, the people that we know the best are the ones who challenge us. I mentioned my wife, Julie. There, there have been more than a few occasions in 28 years of wedded bliss where Julie's kind of gone, hey, Mac, uh-uh, I don't think so. It's called accountability. And if, if, if God's created us for relationship, doesn't it make sense that there would be some beliefs personally, some assumptions culturally, that a morally perfect, all-knowing creator God would push back against? I, I think that that, this probably is the biggest objection that most people have to Scripture. Now, sometimes they'll throw out history or, or science, and sometimes those are legitimate questions, but also sometimes those are smoke screens. Sometimes people are using those to discredit Scripture historically or scientifically so that they can ignore Scripture morally. This is what the Bible says. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. It 
cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. I'm just going to tell you, for me personally, that rings true. Like, I, I recognize that dynamic because there are times when, when I pick up Scripture and I'm reading it just for myself, not to prepare a message or a sermon, but as I'm reading the Bible, trying to get to know God better, there are parts of this that kind of make me flinch. Kind of like, God, that, that is really uncomfortable because it's piercing Sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing joint. It, it penetrates. You see, the real problem with the Bible is not when we read it, but when it reads us. And we see things that we need to change. We see parts of our lives that need scrutiny, that, that need accountability. But here's something else that I've noticed. There's never been one time, not one, that I have changed something I was doing or a way that I was thinking to align with Scripture that it didn't make my life better, that it didn't enhance what God had given to me so far. Every page of this book is an act of love because God has given us this again as rules of engagement to connect with him and so when I read a part of this book that is challenging that, it, that is hard to stomach in 2019 with my 21st century sensibilities and I humble myself and I ask the Holy Spirit of God to change my heart, to change my mind. Everything gets better. It's not easy. Don't, don't, please don't misunderstand me. And there, there are times when it's tough. When, when, I, when I read scripture and it tells me that I'm supposed to love Julie the way Christ loves the church, And, and I, and I kind of dig beneath the surface of, of a nice image and a pretty picture. And then I remember, oh yeah, Jesus died for the church. Jesus put his wants and needs on the back burner to help us be everything he created us to be. He died for the church. His people. So that means that I've, I've got to, I have to actually sacrifice for my wife. But I will tell you this, when I do it, everything gets better. It's not easy, but everything gets better. 
John said something really important also in chapter one about the word, about Jesus. He says, so the word, the word became human and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, grace and truth. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. The Word became flesh. And he made his home amongst us. He left his rightful place in heaven at the right hand of God the King of kings and the Lord of lords to be a human being, to to become one of us, to, to, to walk amongst us, to grieve with us, to celebrate with us. The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. That, that's a relationship. He didn't just tour the area. He became one of us. He stepped into our mess and said, I can make it better. Follow me. Trust me. Obey me. And watch what I'll do. I want to ask you just to bow your heads for a moment, just for a brief moment. I don't know where you are right now. But I do know that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, became flesh and made his home amongst us so that we could have a relationship with him. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that relationship personally and definitively, we want to invite you to do that to choose based on the evidence, based on the facts, to follow him, to trust him. Don't don't check your brain at the door. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, the greatest command is to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, your strength, and your mind. Bring every bit of your intellect. You're going to need it but follow him. If that's you this morning, then we invite you to pray a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning right where you're sitting. Just silently talk to God from your heart to his. Just silently say something like this, Jesus, I need you. I need your forgiveness. Your truth and your grace. And so I confess my sin to you in order to claim and accept your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward. I choose to believe you died on the cross for me. I choose to believe you rose again with an offer, with a promise of a new life, which I accept right here, right now.
I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for another moment. A sacred moment. But if you just prayed that prayer, then I want to say something to you especially. This is the greatest moment of your life. And you're kind of in the perfect place for it because you're surrounded by people who want to help. And so I want to ask you to do a couple of things if you would. If you'll allow us the privilege to help with what's next. If you would, just quietly right where you're sitting, just take out the program that you got when you came in and open it up. You'll see inside there is the connect card. This whole thing is about connection. Connection with God, connection with each other. And if you would, just begin filling out that connect card right now. Just fill it out. Your name, contact information. You'll notice right below that is a place to indicate, I committed my life to Christ this week. And once you've completed that card, you can, you can tear it off at the perforation there along the fold. And before we leave, when we dismiss in just a, just a moment, I want to ask you to hand that card to one of our ushers or maybe to somebody at the hub out underneath the big front porch out here. And that'll just begin a conversation that proceeds at whatever pace works for you. As a family, and as a family, I want to ask you to do just one more thing. If you just prayed to receive Christ, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just raise your hand and hold it up high for just a moment as a physical statement of that spiritual commitment that you just made. And know that we want to help. We celebrate that with you. You can go ahead and put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.